Beloved saints, this is our God's word for us today. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take of his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. He was saying, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and no one in the, and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Uh, this ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray his blessing on our time. Uh, in it. Great God of truth, we confess that we are prone to believe lies and not the truth. We are easily swayed and led astray. The simple reality is that we give our ears to voices we ought not. We believe things that are simply not true. We believe things that you have denied. We believe that we are limiting you by our strength, that our sin constrains you that our wickedness is greater than your mercy. But as we now turn to your word, we ask that you would root out all lies, destroy all impostors of the truth, renew our minds in your knowledge. All this we ask in the name of the God who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. We humans have a peculiar ability to hear without hearing. We listen, we nod, smile, 
We can even sometimes repeat the words we've heard back, but somewhere the message gets lost. Somewhere in our minds it gets changed, retranslated into what we think the person should have said. And then at some point it all comes out that what we thought, what we assumed, what we believed we heard was never really what was said in the first place. We all do it. Hopefully we can admit that. Our passage today is one of those places where we hear God without really hearing him. Most of us can quote verse 23 from memory. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We, we know God said it. We, we tell others about it. But we don't really think it means what it says. And so, when God calls us to put others before ourselves, when life gets hard, when following Jesus becomes costly, when life becomes painful, we say, I don't get it. I follow Jesus. I try my best. Why is life so hard? And we think that any pain or suffering is somehow automatically proof that God's angry with us, that he's not happy with us, that we've done something wrong. Because if we, because if God loved us, because if, if we were doing what was right, life would be good and easy and happy. Perhaps we simply don't understand what Jesus said, what he meant, or perhaps we just don't want to believe it. But the sooner we come to peace with what he has said, the better we will understand God's purposes in hard times. More than that, if we truly understand who Jesus is, if we truly understand what it means to belong to him, we will understand that suffering in this life is not proof that we don't belong to God. It's not proof that he's angry with us but it's actually proof that we are his children and it's also proof that heaven awaits. My hope this morning as we look at this heavy and yet comforting passage is really to drive home one point and it's this. Followers of Jesus are known by their their participation in his suffering and in his glory. That if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be known, you will be marked out and defined by your participation in his suffering and in his glory. That's what I want us to see. And to do that, we want to do just two things. The first is we want to see who Jesus is. We, We want to look at the identity of Jesus as he is finally declared to be the long awaited Messiah. And then finally, or secondly, and maybe finally, we'll then do the best we can to follow God's commands and actually listen to Jesus and his command to us to take up our cross. Uh, That's what we want to do in the the time ahead of us this morning. There's a question that's been following us through the book of Luke so far. As we've been studying, there's this question that keeps coming up. First on on the lips of the crowds, then on the lips of of the disciples. Last week we saw on the lips of Herod, and it's this. Who is Jesus? That's the question. 
But here in our passage, we find Jesus asking the question, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond with the various answers that have been being floating around about Jesus. We heard these last week uh, in the response to Herod when he asked who Jesus is. Some thought that Jesus was either John the Baptist or the return of John the Baptist. Others compared him with Moses, the prophet of old. And it's not that they thought that that Moses was raised from the dead, uh, but there was a prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet like Moses would be raised up from among the people. And when they say a prophet of old has arisen, that's what they're referring to. Uh, But uh, who can forget that Malachi said, before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come. And some thought that Jesus was him. And again, it's they're not expecting Elijah literally to be raised. He can't be. He was taken up into heaven directly. But they're expecting one to come with his ministry and power. But Luke tells us in chapter 1 that that was John the Baptist. Chapter 1, verse 17, he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. These are the standard theories about who Jesus is. The disciples aren't saying anything new. Jesus knew what they would say, but he's not done. Then he asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? They've been with him the longest. They know him the best. They, they've listened to him. They've watched him. Have they figured it out yet? Because at the end of the day, It doesn't matter what others think. What they think and what they do can't save you. The question is, what do you think? Who do you think Jesus is? That's what matters. And so he turns to his disciples and he poses the question. And it's Peter who answers. It's always Peter. And, And this is one of the times Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Christ of God. The Christ. What does that mean? Some people think I, I, that, that Christ is Jesus' last name, like Johnson or Smith. It, that's not it. Christ is a title. It, it's just the Greek word uh, for, the, for what's translated in the Old Testament as Messiah, the Anointed One. Peter is saying, he's confessing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament, the one who would come and deliver God's people from oppression, the one who would restore and sit upon uh, the throne of David and rule the nations, the one who would come riding, as Daniel said, on the clouds of heaven with the angels. Peter says, you're him. And Jesus doesn't deny it. In fact, he affirms it. Peter has has figured it out. The moment that everyone has been waiting thousands of years for has come. But no sooner does he say this than Jesus actually commands his disciples, you're right, but don't tell anyone. In fact, this has been a recurring theme in Luke and you'll see it in other gospel accounts. And Some of you have asked me about this. Why does Jesus keep telling people to tell no one? For a long time, I've assumed it's simply a matter of timing. If Jesus uh, 
tells everybody who he is, it'll hasten uh, the antagonism of the leaders and the cross, and it's not his time yet. And, and he says that. But I don't think that's the whole story. I think it's just part of it. I think there's something more going on. Have you ever had really big news and shared it with someone? What's the first thing you say afterwards? But don't tell anyone. Why? Because you want to be the one to share your big news. And you know that it's everybody's temptation once they hear big news to immediately go out and tell everybody. But it's not theirs to share. It's appropriate for the one who has the big news to be allowed to share it when and how he or she wants. And Jesus wants, he needs to be the one to reveal who he is. But it's not simply because it's big news and it's his to share. It's because the people haven't been listening. They've heard him talk about the Messiah. They've heard God speak through the scriptures. They've read the scriptures. But somehow, somewhere, the message got lost. All they remember is the good stuff. The ruling, the conquering, the delivering, the humiliating of the nations. And they miss the other side. That the Messiah must suffer many things. That he must be rejected by the leaders of Israel. That he must be killed. And only then can he be raised and enter into his glory. That there is a necessary road of suffering for the Messiah to walk. And it's necessary because of his people. Those he came to deliver, they were sinners. And someone has to pay the price for the rebellion. And if it's not going to be them, it has to be somebody else. Somebody has to suffer. Death was not optional for the Messiah. It was absolutely necessary. If the disciples were to be set free to share that Jesus is the Messiah, you know what message they'd take. All suffering's behind us. Good news. The Messiah is here. Good times only ahead. They would have skipped over the hard part because they weren't listening yet. In one ear, out the other. All they heard was, yep, I'm the Messiah. Jesus needs to make it clear and unmistakable who he is. And if he's going to do that, he's going to have to do more than tell his people. He's going to have to show them. Because until then, they won't get it. And so until then, he tells his disciples to tell no one. You're not ready to share this. You don't understand yet. Eight days later, he took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, And he went up the mountain to pray. And suddenly, while Jesus was praying, his appearance was changed. His face and his clothes became radiant. And then two men were with him. The two that people often mistook him as. Moses and Elijah. And like John the Baptist, the other who people had mistaken, these two served Jesus. They testify by their presence, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, that Jesus is greater than Moses, than Elijah, than all the prophets. 
And while they're there, they spoke of his departure, or literally his exodus. They're talking about his leaving this world through his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Glory would be his, but not in this world. It would be his in the world to come. And that death was his necess- the necessary road he must travel to get there. But that also meant for those who are listening that death would not have the final word. Yes, death would be horrible. Yes, it would be painful. But it would not be final, not for Jesus. Elijah and Moses are are the perfect two to speak with Jesus about this and drive that message home. Because both of them knew what it meant to struggle in this life, on this earth. Moses spent his almost his entire life doing one of two things. Either battling the strongest, most powerful king on earth, or leading a stubborn and rebellious people through a barren wilderness. Doesn't sound like a fun life, does it? More than this, his calling was to intercede for those rebellious people. It's possibly best illustrated as they approached Mount Sinai. You might remember there's a cloud on top of the mountain. Sound familiar? And God's in the cloud. And so the mountain becomes holy by God's presence. And God says, if anyone touches this mountain, any sinful being, they will die. And the people said, we can't go up the mountain Whoever does will die. Moses, go up the mountain. Intercede for us. It would mean certain death. But Moses said, okay. And he went up, but he didn't die that day. Instead, God said that he would not be allowed to enter the promised land. He would die in the wilderness, and he would never see his home in this life. And so Moses was never allowed to enter the promised land. He died in the wilderness, the last thing before the people went in. But where are Jesus and his disciples when all of this is taking place in Luke 9? They're in the land. They're in the promised land. And for the first time, Moses sets foot in the promised land. The land that he longed to enter. Not in his earthly life, but in death he experiences the reward he longed for. Think about Elijah. He lived in a day of utter persecution. He lived his life constantly on the run, not from foreign kings, but from the king of Israel. Prophets all around him were either being killed or were uh, compromising and abandoning God. At one point, he thought he was the only one left. Elijah's life was one of constant pain and affliction. Not because he was rebelling against God, but precisely because he was following God and remaining faithful. And his reward was that he was called home to heaven 
His reward was in the life to come. Elijah understands what Jesus is talking about when he says that suffering precedes glory. Both of these servants understand suffering. And now both are standing in glory. That's the pattern. On that mountain, that day, Jesus afforded Peter, John, and James a glimpse of what awaits. A glory, a bliss, a perfection that this world has never known. Something that you you have to see and experience to truly appreciate. Something too wonderful for words. This is what awaits Jesus on the other side of the grave. This is what he told them will be his after he suffers and is rejected and put to death and killed and then risen, raised on the third day. And then a cloud, typical of God's presence in the Old Testament, uh, appeared. And out of that cloud comes the voice of God. This is my son. Listen to him. Think about this. John the Baptist came and said that Jesus was the one that we needed to listen to him. Jesus' arrival is so important that Moses and Elijah come back from the other, the world to come to bear witness that Jesus is the one and that we should listen to him. And the endorsements keep piling up. But just in case we've missed it, the Heavenly Father himself is now saying, Peter was right. He's the Messiah. He's my son. Listen to him. And that means Jesus is the greater prophet. He is the one God told Moses would come later. He is the one that the coming of Elijah in John the Baptist would precede. He is the one who would restore the throne of David. He is the one who would conquer the great enemy. He is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. Whatever he says, we need to listen. I mean, really listen. Not sort of listen. Not reinterpret to fit our own agendas. He speaks, we listen. So let's go back to verses 23 through 27 and see what he had to say to Peter and the disciples upon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 23, he told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus. And this verse has confused many. What does it mean to take up your cross? What exactly is Jesus saying? Well, first, taking up your cross is an act of self-denial. We live in a world that thinks man's greatest struggle is a lack of self-esteem. We're taught to believe that we can do anything if we just believe what in ourselves. We're told the truth is in us. We're, we're told that we just need to find ourselves. We're told that we should not lose ourselves in our marriages but protect our, our individualism, our identities, to, to have our own friends, our own bank accounts, our own interests and hobbies, our own lives. In other words, we are taught to spend our lives focusing on ourselves, 
serving ourselves and protecting ourselves. And then we're told happiness awaits us if we do. Denying yourself means putting all of those things to death. It means worrying more about others' needs than your own. It means bearing the cost of serving even when that cost is painful. Denying yourself is not a denial of things, what we call asceticism. Jesus is not calling everyone to live like a monk, to just escape from everything and go live in isolation. You can't serve others if you're not around others. It's not a denial of things, it's a denial of self. And that's harder. It's a call to the cross. He says, take up your cross. And it doesn't mean you need to die as a substitute for sinful humanity. What he's saying is, is learn from the cross. It is, it is the greatest act of selfless love the world has ever seen. On the cross, Jesus put our needs before his own. He served us at a great cost. He suffered, not because he was being punished for some wrong he had done, but because it was the price of loving us. And really, when we talk about his cross, we have to understand that it includes all his sufferings, not just his death. Jesus endured all the miseries of this life as a part of his suffering. Taking up your cross doesn't simply address when you deal with overt persecution for being a Christian. It, it, it doesn't just include specific acts of service. It includes all pain that God allows you to and calls you to endure in this life. It did for Jesus. And he accepted it. That it's the road that the Father had called him and so he to walk and so he bore it willingly. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he's calling you to, to sacrificially love and serve others and he's calling you to accept that following him will mean that the Lord will call you to share in his pain and heartache in ways that you do not always understand. And you won't always know why. And this will be a way of life. It's not, it's not a, sh- a short period of life at the beginning of the Christian journey, some initiation right that you have to get through. He says, do it daily. This is the Christian life. In his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes a distinction between three understandings of grace. He says, there are those who believe in works grace. And it's the idea that we have to earn God's favor. We have to buy his love. And this is really moralism. It's the lie that we either uh, purchase our salvation or at least help God accomplish it. The Bible rejects that. He says, then there's those who believe in cheap grace. This is that, that lie that, that becoming a Christian is nothing more than uttering the right words. You, you, if you just say the correct words or pray the right prayer, that you never need to worry about things again. You can live however you want because you've checked that box. The Bible rejects this. And so in rejection to both of these, Bonhoeffer describes what he calls costly grace. 
This is the idea that coming to Jesus costs everything. That you surrender your life. That, that you surrender final say over what God may or may not bring into your life. That you entrust everything. You are everything you have to him. And so Bonhoeffer rightly points out that that being Jesus' disciple simultaneously costs you nothing and everything. Lest we misunderstand following Jesus to simply mean pain and suffering, Jesus goes on to explain the great choice. Everyone must choose between glory in this life and glory in the next. Between pain in this life and pain in the next. That's the choice, verse 24. You see, the temptation is to try to hold on to your life, your comfort, and try to maintain control over everything. But in doing so, you end up losing it all. And one day, the bill finally comes due. But those who let go of their lives and entrust them to Jesus, they end up saving their lives. Jesus warns them that that those who are ashamed of him before the world, of these he will be ashamed before the Father in heaven. And so he asks the question that we must all answer. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit himself? Jim Elliot put it this way. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Following Jesus is costly. It's a call to the cross. It's a call to sacrificial service and it will certainly be painful. You will suffer. But this life is not all there is. In death, you will see a glory, a bliss, a perfection that this world has never known. Something you will have to see and experience to truly appreciate. Something too wonderful to put into words. This is what awaits those who follow Jesus on the other side of the grave. And so when you wonder why your life is so hard, when you're tempted to say, I follow Jesus, I try my best, shouldn't things be better? And you start to think that any pain or suffering is automatically proof that God is angry with you. When those hard times come and you assume you must have done something wrong. It's then that you need to remember Jesus' words to his disciples that day that this is simply the Christian life in this world. Because glory is reserved for the next. Jesus' words aren't meant to make that easy. Not to say it's no big deal. He gets that it's a big deal. They're meant to give an eternal perspective to our temporary hardships that we face in this life. And so we end where we began. There's really only one question that you have to answer from Jesus, and it's this. 
Who do you say that I am? That's what matters. Not what the crowds say. Not what your parents say. Not what your college professors say. Not even what Peter and the disciples say. Who do you say Jesus is? If you believe that it was necessary for him to suffer, to be rejected, killed, and rise on the third day, if you believe it was necessary because there was no salvation possible for you without it, if you have come and surrendered your life to him to do with as he will, even if that means suffering for his sake and not experiencing an easy and pleasant life in this world, if your hope is in the life to come, then you are his disciples and he offers you a simple meal. The bread and the wine are constant reminders of who our Savior is, the one who suffered and died and rose again. And they are reminders to us of our call to join him by taking up our cross. And they are reminders that those who lose their lives for his sake will find them and be with him forever in heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Christ who came into this world not for glory, but to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to rise again on the third day. Help us to listen to him, to know that we are fellow heirs of glory provided we participate in his suffering in this life. Help us to block out the voices of the enemy that teach us to expect nothing but ease and comfort. Help us to face adversity confident that you are leading us to heavenly glory. Amen.